0: We are continuing on our Nehemiah series, and I'm I'm hoping to finish it before the start of December so that we can celebrate a Christmas series together. Uh, But um, I'm going to do my best. And it was so funny because I I had told myself that if we are going to finish this series on time, I'm going to need to accomplish teaching and preaching two chapters for the next five weeks. And it just so happened that as I was studying Nehemiah 5 and 6, I was going to marry them together, but it was impossible. You guys know me. I'm long-winded. So I'm doing you a favor today. I'm cutting out 6 leaving 5. Otherwise, we'd have been here for about two hours. Um, and so uh, we will, we'll continue with, with chapter 6. But I'm just letting you know today, I'm thinking about you, y'all. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking about your lunch. I'm thinking about, amen. Okay, I guess you want me to go long, praise God. Uh, (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 5, and uh, if you just want to keep your finger there, we're going to kind of go in and out there, but I do want to read chapter 5, verse 9. I want to challenge you today with the very same question Nehemiah challenged the rich and powerful with during the rebuild process. Let's just look at verse 9 really quick. It says this. And this is Nehemiah speaking. He says, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. And here's the question I want to challenge you with today. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Art you not to walk in the fear of our God. Now hold that place there. I I just want to be honest with you this morning. Um, When it comes to the fear of God, when it comes to godly fear, I'm a little concerned. Uh, I'm concerned that the church, in an effort to become more appealing to the culture, has produced leaders unwilling to talk about it and members unwilling to embrace it and walk it out. I'm a little concerned that we've exchanged the fear of the Lord for the love of God because the love of God feels so much better. Uh, we're a, a feels society. We, we go by emotion. Whatever makes me feel better, uh, then I'll, I'll address it. But if it doesn't feel right, then I won't address it. But I want to let you know that the word of God uh, cuts beyond your feeling and goes deeper than that. And I don't want to be a church that sacrifices talking about the full counsel of God because we want to be relevant to the culture. In fact, there will be a lot of you that may leave this church and not come back because we don't want to be relevant to the culture. But as long as you're at your church, as long as you're at this church, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, I want to make a promise to you that we will not not sacrifice the full counsel of God's word just to be relevant to the culture. We won't do it. I want you to hear this out. A Christianity absent the fear of God is a self-centered Christianity. A Christian, Christianity absent the fear of God is not just a self-centered Christianity, but it's a self-centered Christianity that never humbles itself enough to grasp what it truly means to repent authentically. Now, Nehemiah was a leader who talked about the fear of God, and he was also a leader who modeled it and walked it out for himself. Let's look at the circumstances that prompted Nehemiah to ask the question, ought you not to fear the Lord? Now in chapter 5, while they were repairing the wall, Nehemiah was interrupted. Now you have to remember, right? Nehemiah's all been about him going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the broken walls. The walls were broken, the gates were on fire, he was sent there, and, he, and he's been rebuilding. Matter of fact, the last time we talked about it, he was rebuilding the walls in the midst of opposition. But now there's an interruption to the rebuilding of the wall. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1 calls this interruption, there was an outcry. Now, this outcry literally means a protest. There was a protest that was led largely by women, And three conditions led to this protest. Three conditions led to their outrage. And let me tell you what they were. Number one, the men were preoccupied rebuilding the wall consumed all of their time and their energy if you can imagine nehemiah came back with a mission and vision and a goal to rebuild the walls and sometimes we can drive so hard for a mission that we get preoccupied trying to trying to build it trying to make it happen and we forget that there are other things that need to be taken care of the men were preoccupied with the rebuilding of the wall number two the land was in a famine We learn here in chapter 5 that they were hit with a famine. The harvest was no longer producing enough food for families to survive on. Now, I want to pause here in this second condition, and I just want to point something out for all of us, and I think it's something we know in theory, but we need to be able to maybe communicate this to our heart as much as we can. Are you ready? Are you ready? Thank you. When I first read that there was a famine... I thought to myself, really God, a famine? As if building a wall in the midst of your enemies isn't difficult enough? You're gonna send a famine? You're you're sovereign over natural occurrences and your people are building a wall and enemies are coming and jeering and mocking at them and now a famine? I wonder if anyone ever felt like that in here before. But here's the truth. It rains on the godly and the ungodly. Can I say that again? it rains on the godly and the ungodly alike. And we need to understand that just because you're in God's will doing God's work, just because you're in God's will doing God's work does not mean that you're going to automatically be sheltered from the unexpected, out-of-control circumstances of life. Just because you're in God's will, Doing God's work it does not automatically mean you're going to be sheltered from the unexpected, out of control circumstances of life. Let's get back to the story. Three conditions. Number one, the men were preoccupied. Number two, there was a famine in the land. And number three, and this is probably the most embarrassing, the most shameful thing of these three conditions the weak were being exploited by the powerful. In fact, I want you to listen to the rage of the protesters. In fact, I want you to look at it. If you have your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 3, I'm going to read quickly through them. Listen to the rage of the protesters. They said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, if you go down to verse 4. We have borrowed money for the king's taxes. We've mortgaged the fields. We've mortgaged our vineyards. We've mortgaged our houses. Verse 4 tells us that now they are borrowing money just to pay the king's taxes. And if you go to verse 5, they're saying this. We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and vineyards. Now, when Nehemiah heard this, we're told that he became angry. When Nehemiah heard the protest and when he heard the subject of what they were protesting, we're told that he became angry. But here's what we're also told. We're told that he became angry and he took counsel with himself. Now, I love this, and this is another side note, but I really love these side notes about Scripture. You see, I believe Nehemiah was angry, but he didn't sin in his anger. You know, you can be angry, but you don't have, you, there's a way to be angry, but you don't sin in your anger. In fact, there's a godly anger that you can carry. It's okay to be angry, but Scripture says just don't sin in your anger. Nehemiah became angry, but I believe he didn't sin in his anger. Why? Because he took the time, ready, to pause, to process, and then to respond. To pause, to process, and then respond. Now, if you're anything like me, You'll admit that a lot of times, uh, many of us, when we become angry, we skip the pause and the process, and we go straight to the response, don't we? Oh, come on, don't we? I see some of your Facebooks. Uh, You you just vomit all over the place. Uh, As Christians, I think we disqualify our testimony when we begin to speak Before we process. You're not supposed to sound like the world. And you're not supposed to look like them. And I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to create this hierarchy. But there's something inside of you that's supposed to be able to pause. Process and pray. And then respond. You could be angry. But just don't be angry in your sin. And this is the surest way to sin in your anger. And discredit your position. No matter how justified you are in your anger. Because sometimes the more justified you are the louder you get. But just because you're justified in your anger doesn't give you the right to not pause and process, respond. Now, after processing, Nehemiah, he responds. (laughs) And he responds in a way that us today, especially in America, would probably be really offended by. Nehemiah responds by calling an assembly together. You ready for this? So that he could publicly rebuke those who had taken advantage of these people can you imagine that can you imagine if I just called a Sunday service together there's about 150 of you in here and I there was about 20 of you in here that needed to be rebuked and I just said hey I just want to let you know Carl Susie Wendy Johnny please stand up (laughs) we're going to publicly rebuke you because what you're doing is wrong but here's the thing is if you are offending publicly then you need to be rebuked publicly I'm going to go off on a little bit of a side note, but I think in the New Testament, call me crazy, but in the New Testament, there's something called church discipline, and America doesn't do that. We don't do that no more. We don't practice that one because nobody likes to be disciplined. Nobody likes to be rebuked. In fact, if you feel a rebuke or you feel a discipline, you might just try another church. Right, that's what we call the cruise liner Christianity, the Christianity that says, well, I'm just going to find the church that's just a, I could just hide in, I could just ride in, I could eat whenever I want to eat, I could leave whenever I want to leave, sleep whenever I want to sleep. But I want to let you know is that some of we need, and I'm not talking about, guys, I'm not talking about abuse, I'm not talking about pastoral abuse, I'm simply talking about is this ability in your walk with Christ to allow people in close enough to discipline you and to take it, to process it, to think about it. So Nehemiah, he calls an assembly together, and he publicly rebukes those who took advantage of the people. I want you guys to look. We're going to read verses 8 and 9. And while you're reading along with me, you'll probably notice that I might be cut pasting. I'm just simply trying to get it. I'm, trying, I'm getting the essence of the verse. There's a, I don't want to take too much time this morning. Um, but if you could follow along basically. We're going to read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. This is how Nehemiah responds. He publicly rebukes those um, that have been taking advantage of the weak. This is what he says. He says, you are extracting interest each from his, and I want to emphasize, brother. He continues, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish, there it is, brothers who have been sold to the nations. But, even you, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And he says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Now I want you to see this. Nehemiah drops what I call three bombs. He brings together a, an assembly. He publicly rebukes the offenders, and he drops three bombs on them. Number one, he emphasizes the fact that the people who are being taken advantage of are not strangers, but they're brothers. Notice how he uses the word brothers. He's emphasizing on purpose. These are fellow citizens of Israel. These are God's people. They're our people, and we're taking advantage of our people, and we're mistreating our people. And the second bomb he drops, he points out the obvious hypocrisy. Are you ready for this? He says, we are becoming a nation that buys its people back from Persian slavery only to enslave them again in Jerusalem for ourselves. And finally, this is what I call the atomic bomb. He drops it for last. He tells the offenders, the only way that you're capable of exploiting the weak is because you lack the fear of God. The only reason why you're able to do this is because you lack the restraint that comes from being governed by the fear of God. Now, I want you to see this. What Nehemiah is getting at is profoundly challenging and still applies to us today. The way we treat one another as God's people directly will affect the way the nations see the goodness of God. The way we treat one another as God's people will directly affect the way the nations see God. So ought we not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Now I want you to see how the fear of God compels Nehemiah to lead in comparison to past leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 15 tells us, The former governors who were before me, Nehemiah speaking, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. You see that? He says, the governors that were here before me, here's what they did. They laid heavy burdens on the people. They took from the people 40 shekels of silver. And even the leaders that were before me, servants lorded over the people. Now look at verse 18. Nehemiah says, for all that I did, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Nehemiah says, in the past, you have had leaders that have laid heavy burdens on you, but I am not doing that. In fact, I am bypassing the food allowance that normally is supposed to be given to me because it would be too heavy on the people. Now, I want you to watch how the fear of God not just compels Nehemiah to be a better leader, but I, I want you to see how the fear of God compels Nehemiah to challenge the oppressors. The fear of God compels Nehemiah to stand up and challenge those that are strong, exploiting the weak. He says this in verse 10, let us abandon extracting interest. He says this in verse 11, I want you to return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses. And he says this in verse 12, we will restore these and require nothing from them. Now this is so powerful to me and I really hope that you would grasp this. Even though this is an Old Testament story, the gospel is all over this chapter. Israel needs to decide How will they communicate to the world around them the glory of their God? Israel needs to decide how will we communicate to the world around us the beauty of our God. Will they communicate to the nations that their God is a God who takes advantage of them, enslaves them, and places heavy burdens upon them? Or will they communicate to the nations that the God they serve is a God who redeems, a God who buys them back out of slavery, restores them freely, and has no expectation of anything in return? I can see you don't get the gospel. Will Israel Israel treat the people in a way that the nations will look at Israel and say, man, their God must be a God of slavery. Their God must put heavy burdens and bondage on the people. Or will Israel treat its own people in a way that when the nations look at how they treat one another, they will say, that God is a God of freedom. That God is a God who buys back and restores without any expectation of something in return. I wonder sometimes what our lives are communicating to the world around us. As followers of Christ, can I challenge you with a question? How is your lifestyle articulating the gospel to those around you? I want to tell you something about the gospel. The gospel humbles. Are we putting on masks and acting like we have it all together? Are we being honest about our sin and our struggles? You know, the gospel invites us to live authentically. Why? The gospel invites us to live authentically in Christ's perfection because we don't have any perfection of our own. Uh, we've been talking about this in our connect, and so it's been, we've been developing. But you come to your connect, and it's just all happy and joy, and, 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 and nobody really wants to share their sin or nobody really wants to talk about it. And I get it. You're fearful. You don't want people talking about you. But here's what I'm saying. What are we communicating about our understanding of the gospel if we can't be authentic with our lives? You know, we're communicating, you don't get the gospel because you think you earn. You think, you think it's good to wear a mask and to live inauthentic lives. And nobody wants, nobody wants to be a part of fake church. And so if someone comes into a connect because they're going through something, they sit down, everyone's saying, well, God's this, this, and that. And, that. and that's great. And sometimes, God, But nobody wants to be honest. And so that person shrinks back and says, well, you're not going to share. Then I'm not going to share. And what we do is we teach newcomers just to be fake. And, I, you know, we joke fake it till you make it. But I'm going to tell you something. The gospel says you be real. Want to know why? Because you're not living in your own perfection. You're living in the perfection of Christ. So here it is. If you're afraid to be real about your sin, it's because you're not understanding the beauty of the gospel that you're accepted even in your sin. Is that too much for somebody? The gospel humbles. Number two, the gospel liberates, doesn't it? Doesn't it free us from the bondage of sin? I'm free. I'm free. The gospel liberates. Christ's perfection on the cross has been imputed to me, and I've imputed. I've given to Christ all my sin, and he's and it laid on top of him on the cross. And he gave me all of his perfection, and it caused me to live free, and it caused me to live in forgiveness. And even if I fall, I get back up. I, I I ask for forgiveness. I move forward. I share with the community because I know that I am accepted not based on what I do. I'm accepted based on what he's done. Are you with me? But the gospel liberates us from our bondage of sin. Now, I've said this to you before. I'm not suggesting it's possible to be perfect. But I am saying, and this is important, as we grow closer to Christ, we move further from sin. We do. There's a, now, uh, please, don't beat yourself up. You've been like, you know, some of us, I said this a few weeks ago, you know, we've been in church for a year or two. We expect God to do, right, you know, in 30 days something that the devil has been doing 30 years in our lives. Right? And I've shared this before, and I'll share it with you again. You know, I can't expect God in one altar call to change what pornography has put in my life for 8, 10 years of my life. Now, I know he's a miracle worker. I know he can do whatever he wants. I know in that moment if he wanted to restore everything he could. But God is a God of process. God, God is interested in cultivating something inside you versus giving it to you right away. He's into, he, he wants to cultivate a humility. He wants to cultivate not a hierarchy of Christians that say the haves and the have-nots, but a Christian that says, you know, what? I've been through the battle too, but I've walked with the Lord. I understand what it means to battle with my freedom. I understand what it means to battle with my bondage. But I, We do do serve a God who does liberate us from our bondage. Are you with me? I want you to see this. The gospel humbles, the gospel liberates, and the gospel is a gift. (laughs) Some of us look so tired. You're, You're striving and you're trying to earn something God has already given to you for free. You're just so tired. And the world looks at you and says, if that's Christianity, I don't want, I don't want that at all. You look beat up. <laughs> right. And you know who the ones that are that way? It's it's not the ones that are all in for the Lord or the ones that are all in the world. It's that person that's like this. It's just look, it's just heavy. It's just not fun. It's just, it's like, yo, I wish you were cold. I wish you were hot, but you're in this middle place. I want you to let you know if your Christianity feels like a burden, you're carrying something more than the gospel. Now, here's what I want to say. Christianity is not all cakes and pies. But the beauty of the gospel should center us so that when it becomes heavy, we take a look at the cross and we take a look at the gospel. We preach the gospel to ourselves and we feel the release that should come from knowing that Christ's perfection has been given to us. And there's nothing I can do on my own to earn it, to deserve it. And I should just be happy and free and knowing that he's been giving it to me. Are you with me? We look so tired, don't we? Oh, brother, you know, just battling this week. Just, you know, barely holding on. Ever since I've been in Christ, it's been hell. It's like, wait, did Christ deliver you from hell or did he bring you to hell? I don't get it. I'm just like, it's been hell since I've been a Christian. I'll tell you. Now be honest, be real. We battle, we struggle, but I want you to know that the, the gospel itself is freeing. And if we if we need to anchor ourselves back on a gospel. And so here's what the battle is for Christianity. It's always to make sure that the gospel isn't being replaced by works or legalism or performance or masks or acting. And so wherever in that place, here's the real battle. The battle is to exchange that back with the gospel again. Because sometimes we do get off-centered. When you're feeling like you're in a striving place, you're in a working place, you're feeling like you said you're a Christian but you're feeling all this way. It's probably because the, the gospel isn't your anchor anymore. So go back to that. I, got, I could go so much into this. It's just I, something else of this, and this is going to be a total side note. It has nothing to do with Nehemiah, but also sometimes some of you, your destiny is your is your gospel anchor. And so when you're not, when you're feeling like you're useless, you're broken because you put your identity in doing things. When you haven't you haven't found your career. Or you haven't found your what's you know you, you haven't found your goal. You haven't attained this great thing in life, and it's just breaking you, and it's even it's weighing on you, and you're not performing the way you know. You're not activating your gift in the way you should. And I get it. As a church, we say all those things, but not at the exchange that the gospel is your center. Are you with me? And so all I'm asking is that you all I'm asking is that you would put the gospel back in its center place. I was was waiting for an announcement to come. This is the broadcasting system. Here we go. (laughs) Let me say this. Some Christians make Christianity look like slavery. And it's probably because they've forgotten the beauty of the gospel and have fallen into the trap. Are you ready? Of legalism or compromise. They call those two, those are the thieves of the gospel. Did you know that? The two thieves of the gospel is legalism and compromise. But it's the fear of the Lord that keeps me from defaming his reputation. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps me from misrepresenting his goodness. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps me from distorting the revelation of the gospel to my friends, my family members, my coworkers, and to the world. I want people to come to Christ because they love what they see in me. This is not only my prayer for myself, but my prayer for our church. May we be compelled to love one another may we endeavor to wash the feet of the city so that the testimony of our God will be great in the Bay Area and in the world. You know, may unbelievers look at Inspired Church and say, you know what, there's a community that just served us and didn't ask for anything in return. Now I want to finish off today's message by emphasizing three things. I want to emphasize three things. I want to invite the worship team just to get ready. First, in this story, the fear of the Lord produced inside of Nehemiah a listening ear and a compassionate heart. Are you with me? The fear of the Lord produced inside of Nehemiah a listening ear and a compassionate heart. Can I take you back to something? Do you remember the conditions that led to the protest? Do you remember the conditions that led? Uh, to the outrage. I want you I want to show you the equation that led to the outrage. Number 1, it was pre- preoccupied men plus famine in the land plus the exploitation of the weak and that all equaled a desperate cry. Are you with me? Preoccupied men plus famine in the land plus the exploitation of the weak it all equaled a desperate cry. Now I want you to follow me here. Outcries come from places of pain. Outcries come from church. Outcries come from places of pain. Let me explain this. Most of the injustices that we see stem from the strong exploiting the weak. But because Nehemiah feared God, he felt compelled to advocate for the weak. We're not good at this. Because Nehemiah feared God, he felt compelled to advocate for those that have suffered injustice. And as Christ's church, we should be careful. Are you with me? We should be careful to meet pain and outrage with compassion and understanding. We should be careful to meet pain and outrage of certain communities with compassion and understanding. And here's the kicker. Even if we disagree or become uncomfortable with the way that outcry is being made manifest. I don't think, I, you know what, I just, you're on the freeway. It's been a long day at work. Some of you might know where I'm going to go, some of you might not. Some of you might not come back to church for this. And I'm not a political pastor, but I'm a pastor that speaks what I feel the Lord's word speaks into every factor of life, including politics. You're on your, you're on your way home for work, it's been long, and all of a sudden the freeway comes to a halt, and you can't move, and you can't get home to see your family, and you're stuck there and you're angry, and I know, and you're frustrated. You wish you can just go home, and then you all of a sudden you realize that the freeway is being blocked because there is outrage in the city. There's protests going on. Yeah, I know, again, this is going to step on your toes, but let me just say, we have to be careful as Christians to meet outrage with the compassion of Christ. Even if we're not particularly excited about the way it's manifesting itself. Here's what Nehemiah did. He stopped and he listened to the cry of those that were being exploited by the majority. Are you with me? He listened to the cry. We should listen to the cry. We should advocate for the weak. You know, God loves both the weak and the strong. Because you know God loves the majority and the minority. Some of you might think if you read scripture, well, I think he loves the minority more than the majority. I think he loves the weak more than the strong. Why does it look like sometimes he, li- he chastises the rich and he sides with the poor? He loves them both. So what's the catch? Because God knows it's the rich that have the resources and the poor that doesn't. God knows it's the majority that has the resources, the minority that doesn't. So a lot of times God isn't picking a side. He's advocating for justice and fairness and righteousness. Because human nature, deprived by sin, always wants to take advantage of somebody. So lay down your political affiliation and the lenses by which you are hearing me right now and just put on your mind of Christ and will you just do one thing? I'm not asking you to vote a certain way. I'm not asking you to side a certain way. I'm just simply asking you, when you find yourself in the midst of outrage, will you stop and listen to what is being said? Secondly, in the story, the fear of the Lord doesn't just... Compel Nehemiah to stop and listen, but the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, connects those. The fear of the Lord, I'm sorry, corrects those who are failing to love one another. I want you to listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, and we're almost finished. John thirteen thirty-five. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now look at First John chapter four verse twenty. If anyone says, "I love God," but hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. As Christ's church, we should repent from tribalism. We should repent from competition. And we should learn to love one another. We should practice cultivating what I call unusual community. Because in Christ, people who have no business coming together, come together. Because, see, what, what we're told is that Christ, he, he brings down the, the dividing wall of separation. And he takes these two groups that were once, in other words, opposite, that were opposed to one another. And he joins them in the body of Christ as one. Finally, I want to bring this to a halt and end this morning. By calling you to reflect upon the fear of the Lord and the cross of Christ. I want you to listen to what John Brown wrote. The fear of the Lord and the cross of Christ. Listen to this. Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending him, into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines... Spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power and holy love. None of these excellencies darken or eclipse the other, but every one of them rather gives luster to the rest. He continues, they mingle their beams and shine with united eternal splendor. The just judge The merciful father, the wise governor, nowhere does justice appear so awful, mercy so amiable, or wisdom so profound than in the cross of Christ. I want to say that again. They mingle their beams and shine with united eternal splendor. The just judge, the merciful father, the wise governor, nowhere does justice appear so awful than the cross. So uh, nowhere does mercy so amiable than the cross or wisdom so profound. It's the cross of Christ that compels us to love him and fear him. Not the kind of fear that brings dread and terror. The gospel doesn't create that kind of fear in our hearts. But the fear of the Lord is the fear that we might grieve the one we love. It's the fear That humbles us and opens us up to obeying his will in ways we could never imagine. This kind of fear is an awe and reverence that can only come from understanding the beauty of the cross. It's fear that does not produce slavery but worship. This is why God's people and God's church should never avoid talking about or living in the fear of God.